Podcasting is an astonishing amount of work, so I rely on some great tools to make it easier. One of my staples is Zencaster. They provide a crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. I love that it records separate audio and video tracks for the guests and for me so that everything comes through really clearly, even if there's a lag in the internet. Plus, there's a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews. Since I'm often recording from remote places, I love that it's easy to record audio only as well as audio and video. It's super easy to use and there's nothing to download aside from your recordings. My guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to zen.ai slash canine conservationists to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Pro. So again, that's zen.ai slash canine conservationists for 30% off. And welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, instead of a silence highlight, we had a review highlight, which is from JP in CB that says, Kayla's authentic, enthusiastic interest of all her guests and topics paired with her knowledge in a variety of scientific fields makes this podcast fun, interesting, and informative. If you have any interest in dogs, nature, travel, science, and even pursuing your dreams, you will love this podcast. Thank you so much for the review. And if you haven't reviewed the podcast yet, please hop on over to your favorite podcasting app and do so. So today I'm talking to Tony Harvey about intelligent disobedience. Um, welcome to the podcast, Tony. Do you want to start out with telling us a little bit about your work and um, the dogs you share your life with? Yeah, brilliant. Uh, thanks for inviting me to this, Kayla. I've been really looking forward to it. So yeah, I'm Tony Harvey. My job role currently is National Dog Training Lead as part of Guide Dogs in the UK. And I've been working in Guide Dogs now since about 2008, I think. Um, during that time, I've also worked at the New Zealand guide dogs as well and epilepsy um, dogs in New Zealand. Uh, I've got my own dog, as well, you can see behind me. I know that's no use for the podcast, but I've got my own little street dog from Thailand just behind me who's uh, busy on a Kong there. Um, and in my personal life as well, I, I live on this um, house that's in the country. So I've somehow ended up with four goats, um, six chickens, a couple of geese. So I do a lot of um, you know, training with those as well, practice with the clicker work with those, doing sometimes similar stuff to what we do with the dogs, not getting them to guide people around um, the streets and things at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, um, we train them platforms and bits and pieces like that. And um, I, I guess my role in um, guide dogs previous to this has been very much hands-on and developing how we train the dogs, along with lots of other people. And we've got you know, a, a training program within guide dogs, which has been devised by other people. And I'm one of those people who just, I guess, likes to get hands-on and try it out and see how it works in the real world as well, really. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So as I said, we're talking um, today about the concept of intelligent disobedience, which, you know, I've understood in the guide dog world as the example, and you can correct me or expand on this in a moment, of, you know, you're asking your guide dog to move forward and there's a ladder overhanging or, or there's a truck or something and the dog doesn't go forward. And I wanted to talk to you about this in the search dog context as well, because there are times where my dog may have caught an odor 
and I want to call them back to me to give them a directional. And perhaps in that situation, if I'm just giving them a directional cue, I may actually prefer that the dog listen to the odor or, you know, obey the odor instead of me. Mm -hmm. But then there are other cases where if I see a rattlesnake and I have an emergency down or an emergency recall, I would like that cue to take precedence. Um, and I think it <laughs> that's one of the, it's one of those things that, you know, once you're in the field, you may realize that you've got these different hierarchies of what you want your dog to listen to. And I would love to talk to you in the guide dog world about what that looks like as you train that concretely and intelligently for your dogs. Um, and then potentially how we can apply that going forward in the field. Yeah, it's really interesting because you mentioned um, intelligent disobedience to me a while ago now, and we started to talk mm -hmm. about it and, and what it is and what it looks like and the term as well, the intelligent disobedience, probably particularly the disobedience part of it and what actually it means and what mm -hmm. we're talking about and what the dogs are actually doing and what they're thinking about and how they're interpreting all of the environmental cues that they're getting. And uh, yeah, as I thought about it, I kind of thought, <clears throat> what is it? And why is it called that? And it's a term that's floated around guide dogs for a long time. And I think in other fields as well, like you just mentioned, the scent work and search and rescue. And I think almost if if we use it in its raw term as disobedience, we're probably almost doing a disservice to our trainers and our dogs. Mm -hmm. Because if we think about all the work that people put into how they train the dogs and how they train the cues and how they maybe build up the cues as well when they're, they're wanting them to um, ignore maybe another cue or another reinforcer that's in the environment, but also for the dogs, if we think that they're doing this almost higher cognitive um, work than we we think that they're doing via the training, then it might mean the next dog that we come across, we expect a really high level of them. So maybe we don't put in the same um, antecedent arrangement to set them up for success like we might do if we have a better understanding of exactly what we're doing when we're training what we refer to as intelligent disobedience. So one of the, you gave us a small example there, didn't you, with the, the ladder being on the street and what a dog does in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, what is intelligent disobedience? So generally, if we, if we give um, a forward cue to our dogs, it generally means just walk forward. And there's going to be situations when they can't do that, when there's a ladder on the pavement or there's a car on the pavement or there's a hole in the floor, you know, all of those things. So if we gave them a forward and they did something that wasn't just going forward, that's what we term that intelligent disobedience. I think in reality, probably what we're talking about is how we've trained a different set of contingencies for our dogs so that they're able to generalize to a vast range of different environments and situations that they come across. So for example, if the contingency is uh, street heads completely clear, I give a forward cue, the dog just goes right, forward cue, nothing ahead, I just keep going. However, if we teach them another contingency as well, when I give you a forward cue, if the, the way ahead's blocked, then I want you to do something different. And we do actually teach that. We don't just expect the dogs just to be able to work it out. We would teach them a whole range of different behaviours they could do in response to the contingency that they're then faced with. So we give them a forward, they can't complete that behaviour. So if let's say it was the, um, the ladder on the pavement and um, the example you started with what we would want then is for them to go to the side curb so we'd want them to go to the, uh, the side um, so that they're pointing out into the road and, and from that point on the guider owner could then go into the road for a short time and then make their way back to the pavement um, so that's just one of the contingencies that we might teach them as well and there's lots of other situations um, whereby I don't know if you're 
at the train platform as well. So if there's a big gap in front and you don't realize you're on the train platform, you give a forward, you obviously don't want your dog to go forward. But we would teach all these and we would build them in. And we always do it, everything we do, we build up gradually as well. So when we first start teaching a forward queue as well, we use platforms. So it's simply, you walk a couple of meters to the platform in front of you. And then we would start to build up to bigger and bigger things. So when we start to introduce that concept of, we want you to do something other than just go forward, we would do that in a very controlled environment first. So we might block the way to the platform first so that when the, the handler gives the forward cue, the dog has to go to the left or has to go to the right first before it can pick up the straight line again. Does that kind of tie in with what you were thinking as well? Yeah, yeah, that does. And I think, you know, that example of like the forward cue and trying to figure out how to, as the trainer, intelligently layer in and teach the dog what we want them rather than just kind of hoping that when you're on the train platform and you say forward, the dog isn't going to be yeah. so quote unquote obedient that it steps off the train track onto the, you know, electrified subway tracks or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So the first, you know, the first time we come across that situation in the environment or when we're doing it, we wouldn't even give the forward cue. We would teach them the alternative behavior that we want them to do first. And then we might mm -hmm. start to build back in that forward cue, but, you know, at a low level first. So we make sure we're mm -hmm. always setting them up for success. so They know exactly what to do. And we're building up that history of, of reinforcement with those behaviors as well. Yeah. And in the guide dog world, this is important because you're, you know, ultimately the dog is being handled by someone who cannot see or cannot yeah. see well enough and that's the whole purpose of why you've got the dog and in the scent dog world in a way we're doing this we, we may want this because we as humans are nose blind um you know it's yeah. not that i can't see the risk ahead of me it's that i don't necessarily want to pull my dog off of odor if i'm calling my dog to me just to give him a drink of water I don't necessarily want to pull him out of a scent cone and off of odor for that. But if I'm calling him to me because I, I don't know, hear a moose or something, um, I may want him to actually listen. And that's where I think um, <laughs> so far in my career, I have kind of relied on the urgency and the tone of my voice to get yeah. the, to get the mission across to the, or no, yeah, get the mission across to the dog, get the message across <laughs> where, you know, I have a, a couple different versions of my recall cue, um, but I haven't taught it in as clear of a way as I would really like yet. And I think that's probably pretty typical in this field for us. You know, we like for my dogs, I'll have like a barley come. That's kind of our casual recall. It works very well. They come very nicely to it. Um, and then if they're if they're taking off after a deer or um, or there's a car or something, obviously, like just because of adrenaline, my voice changes. Um, yeah, so it's, it's what, really interesting. Um, isn't it? yeah. yeah, go ahead. I, I think our dogs bail us out of a lot sometimes, don't they? Because they work through all of the. Sometimes inadequacies with our training as well, and they manage to work through it and yeah. go, I know what you really mean. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I don't want, uh, you know, going forward, I, I think in an mm -hmm. ideal world, I'm not relying on them being able to de decipher different tones in my voice. I would like to actually teach them these contingencies yeah, exactly. intelligently. Um, so, and I know one of the things we talked about in kind of our pre interview was that, you know, Maybe we are not sure about the term intelligent disobedience. I know we kind of threw around a couple others. Is there anything that you you like better as a, a phrase here? Um, yeah, I've been thinking about what we might call it and, and things. And as a phrase, uh, yeah, I couldn't think of what we might 
label it really um because what i was thinking as well because it's it's quite it's a label isn't it intelligent disobedience we know that and we're trying to break it down to what it is and i was thinking you know sometimes the magic of science you know it's actually in the science and it's in the knowledge and it's in the detail sometimes it's not magic we know that but it's still pretty like you're saying um when we just try and give different um, tones of our voice and that's how we're trying to train the dogs but if we actually try and really train it perfectly so we are training that intelligence that's where the kind of the you know the real magic is the real science is isn't it so whether mm -hmm. it's separate to our training and needs a different term i'm not really sure because i think it's you know it's something that we train all the time isn't it so when we're walking down the street as well we have you know we refer to them as distractions don't we but if we really look at what they are they're competing reinforcers so we might have another dog that we'd rather our guide dog walk straight past and straight to the curb for. Um, we call it a distraction because there's another dog there. We don't want it to be distracted. But as far as the dog's concerned, it might be really re reinforcing to go and say hello to that dog and have that interaction there. And it's all kind of the same thing. In that situation, we just want them to keep walking straight until they get to the next objective or, or next curb. When they find themselves in a situation of they can't follow the exact cue they've been given, it's exactly the same as that. We just want them to follow the training that we've put in there and we've generalized and we proofed and we've done all of that work to give the dog set up the dog for success as much as we can as well and I was listening I think you were talking to Dr Susan Freeman weren't you a while ago and yeah. she was talking about service dog industry as well and it was very much sometimes you hear this term don't you well they have to work in those conditions at some point but the stark you know our start position very much is not in those conditions we don't have to start in those conditions we can start in a very different level from what we need to eventually get to just so that we can really make sure we can get in that high level of reinforcement where we need it we can really teach the dogs what we want them to do and really set them up for success and another term that comes into the service dog industry quite often i'm sure it does in your world as well is need and resilience mm -hmm. and again it's it's another label isn't it it's like what exactly is resilience and think about what resilience is i think it's that ability to bounce back and have another go and lots of the time people would say, you know, in the past, they might say you need to build up resilience by making a mistake over and over again. So they build resilience to making that mistake. The approach that we take is we build up how to get it right all the time. So we build up that history of reinforcement and that resilience comes from that ability to say, well, I did it wrong that time, but I've got this huge history of reinforcement there. I know exactly what to do to get it right. So I go and do that next time. And I think, you know, if we operationalize resilience, that's kind of what it means to me anyway. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I recently did an episode on kind of errors and mistakes and failure because I got a question on Patreon from someone who asked about how do you teach your dogs to handle errors or mistakes? And I was kind of like, oh, I, I don't. I, you know, I really consciously teach them how to problem solve and how to you know enjoy the game and and work through things and we build up their endurance and their stamina and again their their creativity and their um uh what's the word kind of their ability to like dig in and keep trying but it's mm, it's not it, that trying. i'm teaching them how to recover by introducing them to mistakes yeah, and um, you just brought errors in there as well, which is uh, another mm -hmm. really interesting point because we talk about errorless learning a lot now. And uh -huh. I guess I'm guilty in the past of we teach our dogs to stop at curbs, obviously. And I would have in the past said, you know, I, I think they only really understand it once they make the mistake a couple of times and they realize they're wrong as well. Um, and I can't remember the name of that pigeon study, but I think we mentioned it to each other where yeah. they have to peck the red light and how they introduce it by reducing the errors, by introducing the gradient of light gradually. 
and mm-hmm. so that's kind of my approach a lot more now and that's what we're trying to do in guide dogs it's not think oh well you know the dog needs to get it wrong it's like no we need to teach it better we need to build up that history of reinforcement more or we need to lower the criterion and then you know build up that criterion build the difficulty into the work that they're doing as well yeah yeah absolutely so you know i think we've given a couple examples of how you go about teaching the dog this you know it's it's almost it's not so much that yeah, I, I don't know if I like this intelligent disobedience term, you know, it's kind of a cue hierarchy in some ways, but it's also teaching them like, well, forward means forward in these contingencies, but in these contingencies, forward actually means go around the obstacle and then continue yeah. forward. Um, do you have any other examples of maybe maybe a third type of behavior that could fall into this category, just to give people another example of how how you may problem solve this with a dog? Um. I guess I can, well, you mentioned search and rescue earlier, and I was talking to my search and rescue mm-hmm. friend um, just the other day to get an idea of um, how they might um, get that intelligent disobedience in. So similar to your scent work, but for them, it might be um, if they're recalling their dog. Um, so they might be at distance as well. And if their dog's on a, so they, they want to get their dog to search a new area, let's say. So they're in the distance and they would give the cue for a new area. But if they're on a scent and they want their dog still to ignore that, cue and then come back to them and indicate that they're on the scent of a you know a person or something like that and how they were building that um intelligent disobedience to avoid uh, to ignore that cue for searching a different area and actually come back to the handler and indicate that they found somebody so what they were doing in that situation is they would have the because when they train their dogs they have somebody hiding with the dogs and they would have not hiding with the dogs hiding for the dogs to find and they would have a walkie-talkie with them. So the walk, the person that's being found could indicate to the handler whether the dog's onto them or not. So then they would know how they might want to start um, mixing up the cues a bit. And the first mm-hmm. start point for them would be really low criteria. So rather than just give a really clear cue for coming back, they might just be playing with their bag or, you know, looking at their phone or just building in. Yeah, slight, uh-huh. You know, slight different body positions that they would do before they would then start to show that cue for the right so they do the recall they wouldn't show the cue for the right you know i want you to search over the right to start with they might play with their phone first but then they would gradually introduce that cue for the right and then once they got it a lot stronger and the dog really understood what's being asked for it they can build up on that obvious cue which i guess is what you were doing with your voice really isn't it? you're kind of building up your your voice a lot um to get exactly what you want so that's how they might build it into that this reminds me of a game that I did in back in a scent work class. I took, I think I took online through Fancy Dog Sports, um, and it, I think they called it an extreme proofing game. And what you were practicing is, you know, as the dog is searching an area, the handler is like doing burpees or spinning in circles or, you know, doing all sorts of weird things. I mean, and you build up to that because a lot of dogs, especially at first. If you so much as, yeah, pull your phone out of your pocket, scratch your head, rotate your shoulders, they're whipping around to look at you and see what's going on. And you get to the point where what you're actually doing is you're putting leash pressure and physical pressure on the dog to try to pull them off of odor and then rewarding them for not not listening to you. And I think where this starts getting really tricky for me and starts breaking my brain is it's like, because I don't have two different recall cues as far as like, you know, a whistle versus a voice or something where I would like to have, because I think in an ideal world, I would have like an emergency stop and an emergency recall that trump odor and then everything else odor should trump that. Um, And I think, you know, (laughs) what I'm guessing I need to do is come up with a separate 
emergency stop and emergency recall cue so that I can really clearly teach this hierarchy to the dogs. Mm. Um, because we have done a lot of those proofing games. Both of my dogs are really quite good at them, but that doesn't then help again in that situation where there's a rattlesnake or something that I really need, you know, keeping my dog safe from wildlife is more important than finding a target. Um, yeah. I, I I think another example of guide dog work as well is which you might ask the dogs to ignore cues. If you're walking on the street and you want to go right, you might start asking right, you know, before you get to that right turn as well. Um, so when you first start introducing that, you'd obviously only do it when you're right at the turn. But then as your dog got better at it, you might start to introduce it early so that if your dog turned early, it would walk you into a wall, basically. So it would be ignoring that cue until oh, cool. I guess the contingency is uh -huh. in place again that you could turn right and you know the space to go right so yeah i guess in everything we do because ultimately we're handing over to a visually impaired handler we're trying to prove everything so that there could be an element of um, intelligent disobedience if we're going to call it that for the mm -hmm, sake of mm -hmm. what we're talking about here we probably build it into a lot of the things that we do yeah yeah that's i mean uh, that's exactly how i taught both of my dogs uh we do some competitive ski joring um, so they have their directionals for that. And both of them, yeah. I taught them at a walk on sidewalks where, you know, I just said, right, as we're making a 90 degree right turn. And then we build up to being able to do it at speed and where I yell it, you yeah. know, maybe 50 meters before we hit the the branch in the in the trail so that we can actually start taking those turns at, you know, at uh, 20 miles an hour um, together. Uh without them just you know the first time i uh the first time i tried that before i kind of layered it in a little bit more uh yeah. i keep using intelligently on the handler's end as well as for the intelligent disobedience but the first time i did it with my dog barley he did take a 90 degree right into like four feet of powder in colorado snow you know he took me literally um and it you know it wasn't a big deal we just had a tumble and luckily snow is soft but that's not the sort of thing that uh you'd want to experiment with with traffic or a visually impaired person yeah. or anything like that yeah and there'd be other times as well that we prepare our dogs for as well with our guide awareness is that sometimes they're given completely the wrong cue so they're told to go completely the wrong way and it could be up a driveway or something like that when they're told to go left and then we would really train the dogs you know no you know you, your objective is to get to this curb or whatever so we we build in a lot of that as well for um <clears throat> handler error i guess at the end of the day yeah yeah wow yeah so so is that you're kind of teaching the dogs specifically to target towards like sidewalks and curbs so that they're able to over time learn to ignore things like driveways or... yeah so that's primarily the main thing that we kind of teach the dogs is just you know keep walking straight until you're <clears throat> given a cue to do otherwise or you reach something that you can't get past or you reach a, you know an objective or a curb or something like that where you're going to get your reinforcement so that's the, the basis of what we're actually teaching the guide dogs and just to avoid all the obstacles on the way to get there as well really so in its simplest form that's what we're teaching the guide dogs. Avoid everything. Stop when you get to an obstruction or you get to, you know, a decision point. Um, and I was just think you mentioned earlier about what we could call that intelligent disobedience. And when you said something which made me think of a decision tree, I don't know whether you've heard that term before. Yes. But yeah. Heard it in tag teach, and I, I use tag teach as well um, <clears throat> quite often. And there's listening to um, I think it's B.J. Mumford. He teaches basketball, and he does very similar. So, and he calls it a decision tree. So, when one of his players would have the basketball, um, you know, the, if there's nothing in front, it might be shoot or dribble. But if there's a player in front, it might be pass or something else. So, depending on what's in front of him at the time, you make this different decision. And, and that's what he referred to as a decision tree as well, which I think works really well. 
I think that's more mm-hmm. more what we're doing than in we're not asking the dogs to disobey us you know they're doing some of the training <laughs> right. that we've trained them to do they're making decisions based on what's in front of them so if we're going to call it anything I think yeah. the decision tree is quite nice yeah I, I like that and I think that gives the dogs um, the credit that they're due for what we're what we're asking them to do Hey, I'm Taylor, and I'm the handler for Kepler, a mini Aussie in training for muscle detection work. Before canine conservationists, I didn't even know about all the possibilities with dogs in conservation. Now I've jumped feet first into the training. I wouldn't have been able to without the support I gained from being a part of the podcast Patreon. My favorite support comes from the group calls. I've been able to get alert training help and felt completely welcome even though I'm a complete novice to this kind of training. The group calls also help guide my questions for my one-on-ones with Kayla. The information is invaluable and the community is kind. I hope to see you there. Yeah. So how do you how do you explain to, you know, if someone was coming to you for their first guide dog, how do you help them understand uh, or, you know, and maybe maybe it's relatively simple, but just talking to them about, you know, if you give your dog a forward cue and they don't go forward, here's what may be happening and here's how you can respond to support the dog. Or, you know, I would assume you don't want anyone giving your dog a correction in that in that point. Yeah. So this is. um. The biggest part of what we do, I guess, because, you know, we have to work with dogs and people and uh, yeah, people have different (laughs) skill sets, obviously, when it comes to training. But we now would spend a lot of time and I say now because probably in the past, you know, we might have just got the dog and the person together and we would try and coach through everything in one go while they're in the environment. But now, and uh, you know, animal training would have a lot to do with this and how we work and we've got better at it. So now we would think about all the training that we do in the same sort of you know, framework that we do we do any training with any animal really. So it's always about breaking it down, setting up for success. Um, and I always refer to refer to it as success orientated training rather than errorless so we can get as much reinforcement as possible because it's virtually impossible to get errorless when you're trying to set it up. So we would do loads of sessions with and without the dog. So for example, if we, we want dogs to ignore food on the pavement, don't we? But we also want the guide dog owner to know what that food on the pavement might feel like for their individual dog that they're working with. And um, as I mentioned, we teach the dogs platforms as well. So they've got a very strong reinforcement of just walking up to the platform and then getting reinforcement on the platform. So when we're on a class situation, and bear in mind, we've already taught this to the dog in the incremental stages anyway, what we would do, we would have two platforms set up, one each end of a pavement, um, maybe 30 meters between them, maybe less, so that we could get the dog walking from one to the other. Before we used platforms, we couldn't do that because the dogs would get bored and switched off. But now we've got platforms. It's very exciting. So they love doing it. And then what we would start mm-hmm. to do is we would start to have food on the road or on the pavement at a certain distance. And we would talk through exactly what was happening for that particular guide or owner. And we'd teach them what to look out for, what they would need to feel through the handle, whether they just need to take the lead and hold the lead in certain parts. And then we would get them to you know click and reinforce at the platform. And then we would gradually move the food closer and closer and closer until they were walking over it. On top of that, we would teach them how that applies to the real world as well. So we would say, you know, if you're going past a bakery or something, you're more likely to have food on the pavement there. So you need to be more aware when you're getting to these points. But also you can be quite proactive and you can already have the lead in your hand. So it just supports the dog to get past anything that you're trying to get past. And those sorts of um, sessions that we do, we could do without the dog first. So we just have them with the handle and then we we could walk them up and down first before we even introduce Mm -hmm. the dog as well. And that's kind of twofold, really, because what it does is it obviously builds up the client's confidence, but it builds up their motor skills so that when they actually do handle the dog, they're better at handling the dog. So the dog's confidence is already starting at a higher level than if it had somebody that felt like they'd never 
held the handle or anything before then so you know we get that you know double win really from doing it that way and we can use the platforms for all competing reinforcers that we might have so other dogs well you can see my dog behind me so sometimes we might bring in a pet dog and then exactly the same we can have the dog walking up between the platforms and we can have the pet dog out to the side and eventually we can get the dog closer and closer and then we can be walking across mm -hmm. their path so they learn what it feels like and then when we're in the real environment and there's a real dog there or real food on the pavement we can talk them through it the first time and then they start to learn what that feels like what they do in those situations you know what works for them and that individual dog as well yeah, that makes sense. I've been, um, I think I saw a photo on the um, the Instagram page of Skylos Ecology, which is another conservation dog um, training organization down in um, Australia, New Zealand, Australia, somewhere in Oceania. Um, I'm pretty sure they're Australia. Um, and they, they had a photo of, they were working with one of their dogs at a farm. And I think there was, you know, there's like llamas and donkeys and stuff. And I think they were just starting to introduce the dog and kind of gauge the dog's interest around livestock. Um, but ever since seeing that photo, I've been kind of obsessed with the idea of trying to take my dogs consciously to farms and having them search near cattle that are mm. fenced and practicing that as a way, um, I think a lot of times in this field, and it may be similar in, in the past in the guide dog world, we kind of hope that we've just got such a strong reinforcement history for odor and that our dogs are so ball crazy that they'll just ignore an elk the first time they see it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty big ask for a lot of dogs. Um, and especially, you know, as far as personality goes, the populations of dogs that you and I are working with are pretty different as far as working dogs mm -hmm. go. We're, we're really looking for dogs that are very attuned to movement and very, you know, ball crazy and prey, or at least enjoying the chase, um, correlate pretty strongly. Um, so anyway, I've been thinking through a lot, you know, how I can be more intelligent in the future as far as introducing my dogs to the concept of, you know, not just searching around people and other dogs, but wildlife and especially, you know, maybe, maybe going around some chickens or guinea fowl or something that's mm -hmm. going to really scatter in a very exciting way versus, you know, a couple big Clydesdales. That's, that's a lot easier even for my, my young herding breed. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? As well, because I think we're, we're very conscious now, aren't we? Of setting our dogs up for success all the time and our animals mm -hmm. and humans up for success. And sometimes when we work in a more sterile environment, you know, while we're introducing stuff, it can be quite scary, can't it, to move on and start introducing those distractions because we don't want it to go wrong. So we also have to be aware that when we are doing this work, we need to be moving on at a pace which is right for our dogs, but we need to be progressing stuff as we're going as well and always increasing that criteria of what we're expecting. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, certain dogs, you can go quite fast. Um, when we first introduce, we call it food manner, so which eventually leads up to not eating the food off the pavement. Um, and we'll start with maybe food lined up on a, a table or something like that. And we'll just have the dog, um, you know, a couple of meters away. And then we'll just give food to the dog just for not going towards the food. And eventually we'd knock it off. But we'd quite quickly change that kibble to maybe a crisp or something more real and make it more, more realistic. Just so that we're making sure that we're constantly increasing that criteria as well yeah. as generalizing to everything really and, and saying you know mm -hmm. this set of rules applies to all of this in the hope that if something novel comes up it's applied to enough things that it's like oh well this rule applies to this as well you know I've done it so many times yeah yeah absolutely um I, I mean I know like this last summer I had the privilege of the wind farm I was working on had a lot of free range cattle and that was a really really good learning experience for my younger dog um, because we had a ton of practice around cattle which to him mm -hmm 
probably isn't that different than pronghorn antelope or elk or whatever. Um, but and they're honestly, in some ways, they're just as dangerous, if not more dangerous. But at least they're semi-domestic. They're pretty predictable. Um, and because they travel in such big herds, I could really see them and kind of pick up the long line and work through managing things um, before things got out of hand. Um, so I've got three questions from Patreon, and then we're uh, we're actually able gonna gonna be able to wrap up here. Um, so two are pretty closely related. So Taylor asked if there are successful or specific dog traits that make this training easier or more successful. And then Megan from Patreon asked if you factor the need for intelligent disobedience in when selecting a prospect for service dog work. Um, so those are different but related questions. Um, yeah, it is a really interesting question, especially in our line of work, because we kind of need a variety of dogs with different traits quite often because we have a, mm-hmm. a variety of clients with different traits. So, you know, we might have um, a person who just doesn't do so much as somebody else. So we might have um, a person who walks really slowly and they just have a small field that they not, you know, a small field for their environment that they access on a daily basis. So that could just be the local shops in the local village or town. And then we might have your guide dog owner that uses public transport. They fly here, then everywhere. They work through different city centers every day. So we actually need a variety of dogs. Um, it's it's quite well known. I think the the breed we use most of the time are your kind of Labrador Labrador Retrievers or your Golden Retrievers, mm-hmm. and a cross of those both. Um, in the UK, we sometimes use German Shepherds as well, um, Labradoodles, and we sometimes use some Pure Poodles as well. But generally, the dogs that we use most are your Labradors and Golden Retriever crosses. Historically, I guess because they're a lot easier to work with, um, it helps that the lab you know, brings out that foodiness in our dogs as well. And that really helps with the kind mm-hmm. of training that we're, we're trying to do now. And in terms of, I guess, you know, the obvious thing that we have to remember is that we need the right size for our dogs as well. So we can't use Jack Russells and things. They're just too small. It doesn't work. I think there's an Australian advert where some guy does have a, um, a Jack Russell as his guide. But yeah, no, size is quite important. It needs to be a certain size on the side of somebody. So all of those things, but yeah, we're looking for temperament. And in the past, I know there's schools around the world that have used different dogs. Dalmatians have been used before. Boxers have been used before. Uh, there's another large breed that I can't remember, but it was fairly sh- relatively short-lived as well, um, like about seven years or so. Um, so when we're breeding, uh, just a little bit about the breed, and we just the main thing we're looking for is health and temperament, really. So we're really breeding to make sure we've got our healthy dogs and the right sort of temperament, which is we don't really want the chase in there. Um, you know, there's lots of those other things we don't want. So that high scent work that you're probably really looking for, we don't really want that either. We just want, you know, them to be quite um, into the handler. So I guess quite handler focused so that we can really work on that training and progress it. In terms of when we start to introduce the um, decision trees and all of that intelligent disobedience, that'll be, we've got about 37 behaviours. We call it STEPS, so it's standardised training for excellent partnerships in our in the uk guide dogs and once our dogs have kind of got that behavior we would probably start to want to introduce all of those other aspects really quickly so we start to introduce okay so you know what to do in this situation but then if it's slightly different and this happens then you do this or and then if this happens and you do this so we start to introduce it really early on so with um, i'm just trying to think what a good example might be so we do location objectives as well um, and what we do is we teach them to find specific points and we can train the guide dog owners then to make a new specific point for them. And we sometimes call it magnetizing an object. So it could be like a post box or a, a shop door. And at first, this means nothing to the dog. 
<clears throat> and then we train the dog that um, it it's something really important to you and you know we back chain it so they learn to find it learn to find it learn to find it but then quite quickly we only want to find it when we give them the cue for that particular object so that might be the door or whatever shop it is um hesitant to use shop names because i know they're going to be different in all the different countries um so you might let's say tesco's you might have heard of tesco's or walmart or whatever it is so you might say walmart um but there'd be days when you just want them to walk past it so as soon as you taught them the queue and they know how to find it in the absence of that queue or with another queue you want them to walk straight past that into the next objective or the next um obstacle or curb and we could teach um, that straight on means you keep going past that. And the way we might do that in the training arena to begin with is we might have a crossing box on your left with a platform there or something. We might have a chair on your right and then we might have a, just a platform straight ahead. So we could teach um, the crossing box could just be box and then they go off to the left. The, um, uh, the chair could be chair, find it on the right. Or we could say straight on or nothing at all. And that just means keep going straight until you get to that platform. So even then when we're teaching stuff like that, we can still teach it in a, you know, that safe environment. And you were talking about having your fenced animals and well, and that would be very much the same for us. We have it in that safe environment. This is what it means in this context. And then when we get onto the streets, it's all exactly the same. We just moved all the, you know, well, we've hired, we've raised the criteria, but we've changed the environment really, but it still means the same. Does that yeah, answer? That okay. I think so. I, I, I think so. So yeah, it's not so much that we're, as you're selecting a dog or you're looking at like a nine month old puppy, you're doing no. tests to see how, you know, you're, you're just working with whatever they've got to teach them the skills they need for the partnership yes, they're going ha to have. In the UK, we have our own breeding program. So we don't select dogs as it were, we do the breeding and then the pups come through and we assess them continually coming through. So at any stage on the guide dog journey, when they're a pup, when they're in training or when they you know, go on class with a guide dog owner, they can potentially be repurposed to another, um, job and we have buddy dogs in the UK or they could be withdrawn and become a pet dog as well so they're always being assessed but the idea is that every dog that we bred will hopefully be a guide dog so that's kind of how we view them and we work to train as many as we can to be the guide dogs okay yeah that makes a lot of sense I think you know it, it is interesting I think because so many of us in the conservation dog world we're working with rescue dogs or you know there's not <laughs> Uh, not yet is there anyone who's breeding dogs specifically con for conservation and detection dog work. And there's so many different, uh, you know, similar to what you said, as far as the role can look really different from draw yeah. for dog, each dog. Um, you know, I can see when I've talked to some handlers, there are some handlers who really prefer spaniels. They like dogs that are highly, highly independent and very much so are going to go out and do the search on their own versus I, I work with border collies. It doesn't get a lot more codependent than a border collie. Um, and we work really, really closely together and they take a lot of direction really, really nicely. And yeah. I think that's probably more important and does factor into this. Like I would imagine yeah. I have to do a little bit more work teaching my dogs to ignore my body movements than someone who's handling a spaniel may have to. Um, because of the breed that we've each selected. Um, but it seems a little bit more like a personal preference thing and then just working with the dog you've got versus something I wouldn't necessarily rule a dog out because yeah. they struggled with this. I guess that's one of the big parts for us as well. It's a, it's our matching process. So when we match our guide dogs to mm -hmm. our clients, that's probably the biggest part of the job. If we get that right, it makes everything else easy. And I, I know I mentioned you know labs earlier being foodie. We know they're not all particularly foodie. 
and there'd be some dogs which probably need that higher level of reinforcement when they're out in the real world working and there'd be others who probably don't need hardly any food at all and we have clients that would be more than happy to use food every day on every curb and every objectives but when we've got those clients as well which might not be comfortable for whatever reason potentially they're wearing suits to go to work and it's you know a bit greasy on the hands it doesn't really matter but we can match around that and so yeah that's why we need all those different dogs with all those different attributes and um as we're going through training as well we can train the clients those needs so when we're getting towards the, the end of training we do try and reduce a lot of the reinforcement food that we're using with our dogs and then when they would mm-hmm. transition over to our visually impaired client again we raise that all that food level right back up again just to build up the trust bank and get them working together and then we would teach them how to reduce that level of food again and that level of reinforcement yeah yeah that makes sense and then our last question from yana i think actually um relates to exactly what we were just talking about as far as four different types of dog personalities how do does he do do you tony approach this sort of training and do you have any problem solving examples so maybe like we could take two different extremes if there's anything you can think of as far as a dog who maybe is much more much much more foodie versus much much more handler centric are there differences in how you train this um well yes uh Yes and no. So essentially we'd have the same training Uh program, but how you would work with that individual dog would be different. And I can think about a situation that's actually when I was in New Zealand and I had probably that exact scenario. So I had two dogs, one who, you know, you could train, 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 and you had to stop the session. And the other would be like, you know, one or two goes and then that's it for me. I'm going to, I'm going to lay down now. That's all I want to do. So I was doing, um, locating the crossing boxes for this and teaching them to target these objects. And uh, so, yeah, with one dog, I could do, you know, 10, 20 reps and that'd be absolutely fine. Always wary not to just keep going to always want to end on the successful one. I always say as well, it's like it's like when you're reading a book, isn't it? Um, Because we always say end on a successful bit or a good bit. And I always think if you're reading a book and it's really good, you can't wait to pick it up again. Um, But if you're reading a book and by the time you stop, you're really bored, you just don't pick it up again. And that's how I try and think about the training. So with the other dog, I would try and do just a couple of reps. I think that was good. And then I'd stop the session there. Um, and then I'd give them a break, a bit of a play, and then I'd go back and just do a couple more reps. But generally find with those types of dogs, once they kind of learn the process and the kind of way you're teaching, you can normally start to get more and more out of them as the training progresses. And it's not, it's probably obvious, but it's not always about the food for them at all. And it's maybe it's about, you know, just working with the person they're working with. So having that whole time and bonding and listening to your dog as well, and responding to their needs and their wants, is probably a big part of, getting them to work with you and getting that buy-in um, and then progressing from there and building up as much as you can. So same training program, different approaches, and I guess you just respond to them in a different way on those levels of schedules of reinforcement and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Is there anything you wanted to circle back to or expand upon a little bit more or anything I didn't ask you about this you wanted to make sure we covered? Um, yeah, no, I haven't. Well, I'd normally on some things that I talk about tag teach a lot more than I have on this particular one, um, but that would be more of the client side of things. And, and that it, the only reason I talk about it is because it ties in so closely with the, the animal training we do now. And I think, I just think sometimes it's really easy to forget the humans in all of the, the thing that we're doing, isn't it? And we concentrate so hard on getting it right and doing all of that. Sometimes a human comes along. I don't know whether you have to hand over dogs that much or you teach other people. So it's always bearing in mind that when we are, it's all about that. It's exactly the same as it? it's breaking down the behaviors, reinforcing the behaviors we want, making sure we've given them everything we can to set them up for success. 
Um, so no, I think I've mentioned it, so I don't probably need to go on about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know if there's too much. I think it, it's just it's really interesting trying to think through how I'm going to take what we've talked about and set up some set up some good training sessions. Um, you know, and and thinking beyond just adding distractor sense, which is something we do really really pretty early mm. on for our dogs. Like with my dog, um, with my puppy Niffler, I think his very like his third session where I was teaching him to find dead bats, we um I started having the same treats he was being rewarded with in tins. So he was having to ignore that. Um, but I think and I think most of us in the scent work world do that. And now I'm I'm really excited about this conversation, just kind of thinking through, okay, so what are some of the other ways that I can layer this in and teaching you know part of it is proofing and really just being like okay when you're searching you're searching no matter what other competing reinforcers are around but also then also yeah like what is my what is my emergency recall cue going to look like and how do i start teaching them that this Mm. one even if you're in odor you're going to listen to and then most of the you know the rest of the time um so yeah i i think yeah that decision tree framework um Maybe I yeah. need to sit down and write out what that decision tree would look like if I was presenting it to my dog. And then and then from there, I think you've made it pretty clear how you would actually teach that. It's been illustrated yeah. quite nicely. I think that's a good point. Is it better planning on our, our mm-hmm. side sometimes would really help? And I th- we talk mm-hmm. about distractions. And I something that I've found really helps me, because if we think about a distraction and your dog goes towards a distraction, our natural feeling is they're doing something wrong or they're being disobedient. But if we actually frame it for what it is, which is that competing reinforcer, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just going to something that's more reinforcing than what we were offering before. And when we start to think of it in those terms, it becomes a lot easier to think about what plan we have to put in place to work through that. So, you know, this dog finds this other dog really reinforcing. So I need something as or more reinforcing to get what I want out of it. And I think that's the same in all of the worlds that we work in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Where can people, um, if they're interested in learning more about the work you do or following you online, is there anywhere that they can check out? In terms of guide dogs, it's just um, the Guide Dogs UK website, which is easy enough to find through Google. Uh, Myself and my wife have a Facebook page just called Click Click Training, where you can see some of the goats and uh, some of Tui behind me on there and some of the training that we've done. I think there is a there is a little film on there of Emily, my wife, training a goldfish to score a goal as well from a few years ago. Um, so, yeah, oh that's, that's the main places for me, really. Uh, Tag Teach stuff, obviously, there's a Tag Teach um, websites online as well, which is always really good mm-hmm. to look at and start seeing some of the videos that they've done. Yeah, well, great. And yeah, and again, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. Um, and to our listeners, thank you all for listening. I hope that you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes and donate to Canine Conservationists and join our Patreon so you can ask questions of guests like Tony over at canineconservationists.org. We'll be sure to have links to all of Tony's um, social media and the things that he mentioned. We'll link that paper with the, uh, the pigeons and the lights as well. Um, so you can find all that there. Um, until next time. Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, 
writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive Detection Dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.